Hello and welcome to All Not Knowing. I'm Eloisa Candelo and my guest today is Talia Gershank. Talia is the director of Hybrid Cloud Infrastructure Research at IBM. Talia is a person who is ahead of her time, always envisioning the future of technology and research. She has an uncanny ability to relate the wonders of the latest technology and communicate in a way that connects with an audience in any level. Welcome, Talia. Thank you so much. What a nice introduction. So I'm very happy, of course, to have you here. And it's an honor. And uh, know more about your trajectory and the ability that you have to communicate with everyone. I hope I can learn that. <laughs> so please, <laughs> could you start telling us um, about yourself uh, and your life before IBM? Yeah, sure. That would be my pleasure. So I grew up in New York. My, my parents, uh, one of my parents actually also grew up in New York. The other one grew up in Israel. Um, so my family kind of spans two continents. And uh, from a reasonably young age in high school, um, I was already very interested in the sciences, engineering, math type subjects. Um, so when it came time to think about, you know, university, I knew I wanted to go to engineering school. So I, I did my undergrad degree at MIT. And uh, during that time, I, I studied a discipline that's actually a lot of people find it pretty obscure. But I, you know, just got really interested in a field called material science and engineering which is the study of materials, right? All the things that make up our world, you know, what, what do you make things out of, right? What do I make a bridge out of? What do I make a computer out of? Um, and I just got really fascinated in, um, in that concept of like the ability to engineer things and the ability to leverage different materials that exist in the world and kind of bring them to bear to solve interesting problems. So I studied that when I was an undergrad. Um, I went to grad school uh, at the University of Cambridge where I did a PhD also in uh, material science. And um, then I came to IBM Research. Actually, I studied uh, solar energy materials. I studied kind of next generation materials for cheaper, more abundant materials for solar cells, uh, the, kinds of, the kinds of devices that people put on their roofs um, or you see fields of them, right, to kind of harness energy from the sun and turn it into electricity. Interestingly, at the time, IBM Research had a program um, in solar energy research. And so I was actually hired <laughs> to do that work, um, which I did for a period of time. But obviously, that's very different from what I do now um, in the world of cloud infrastructure. So, and uh, when we think about my material science, as you said, maybe it sounds a little obscure for a lot of people. How did you know about this area and uh, what, what was, why you were attracted to, you, to study that, the materials? Yeah, it's a it's kind of a it, it's kind of an interesting combination of chemistry and physics and engineering, right? So when you think about like a material, you know, specifically, you know, the, the world is kind of completely dominated and made up of devices made of these semiconductors, right? You know, you your computer chips, uh, your smartphone screen, uh, all kinds of devices are made of semiconductors. Semiconductors are very interesting materials. Um, the things that determine their properties are fundamental uh, concepts in chemistry and physics kind of coming together that determine the way these particular materials behave. And how you process them uh, makes a huge difference in, in what they do and, and how, they kind of, uh, kind of, how they kind of behave. So I just found that whole discipline interesting. I, I had to take um, 
you know, any as an undergrad in a lot of engineering schools, MIT is no different. You have kind of required courses, coursework, right? I had to take a chemistry class. I had to take a physics class. I had to take math classes, right? And the option that I had on the chemistry one was I could either take it in the chemistry department or I could take it in the material science department. It was intro to solid state chemistry. Uh, and I chose that one. I just happened to choose that one because it was a, something I knew less about. And I was just kind of like inspired by this this whole world opening up of like all these different ways that chemistry and physics could come together to cause materials to be so different from each other. And I got hooked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And it's interesting that you chose something that you you didn't know so so much about. You said, I, I chose something that I... I didn't know a lot, so I I, I found this path. And um, in your PhD, did you work with materials as well, as far as uh, you said? And you worked with inexpensive solar cells as well. So why inexpensive? <laughs> What's that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that's a great question. So um, yes, I did my PhD in 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 uh, the the material science department, and I was studying essentially kind of emerging types of solar cell materials. And it was motivated, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I also did an internship at the National Renewable Energy Lab in the United States, which is in Colorado. Um, really, really wonderful place. Um, you know, and the thing that I the thing that I got so excited about with that internship was it was an application of what I was learning to solving a problem that I found meaningful, which is, right, trying to, um, you know, improve renewable energy technologies so that we can have more sustainable, you know, energy production and, you know, all of these nice things about, like, can we make a difference to climate change and these types of things, right? So I was very motivated by applying what I was learning to a meaningful problem. And at the time, this, the whole field has changed so much in the last 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, at the time, and it's, this part is still true today, the large majority of solar cells that you can buy are made of crystalline silicon, um, which is expensive to process. Um, it's, you know, energy intensive. It's the same kind of kind of t- similar technology to what goes into like transistors, right? You know, when we buy a computer mm-hmm. chip, it's, it's similar technology. But, you know, you have to process silicon at high temperatures. You have to remove the impurities. It's an expensive process. It's an energy intensive process. And so there's been efforts over time to say, well, can there be thin film solar cells that I could just coat onto you know, a glass substrate and put it on, you know, put it in more places. Can I get these solar cells to have applications in more places? Can I coat them onto various things so I can do unique, you know, unique ideas for where I could put these types of devices? So thin film solar cells that like I could literally coat things, you know, uh, became, became a very interesting area of research. And a lot of the technologies that are behind thin film solar cells are made of, you know, either non-abundant materials, including with indium and gallium, or they're made using toxic materials like cadmium. So, you know, there was a whole, there was a whole, you know, field that emerged that was, you know, very, uh, very much, you know, emerging around the time that I was doing my, my PhD around, okay, can we explore earth abundant materials, non-toxic materials that could form the basis of future thin film solar cells? So that I found very interesting. You know, the hope was, can we can we invent technologies that would make these kinds of devices more ubiquitous? Yeah, my PhD in particular didn't get didn't get us so so much farther in this direction, but uh, it was at least a, an area I was very interested in. 
Yes, it's very interesting because it sounds that's not just the material, but also the process to do those. No, those are the solar panels that makes it uh, less expensive as well. So, and did you have any influence of your family and friends on your career or research path, and uh, now as a director? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I remember many conversations with my mother when I was like, oh, I'm going to go do this internship in Colorado, or I'm going to go do my PhD in the UK. She was like, but New York is so great. Like, can't there be a job in New York? Can't you consider New York? <laughs> and I just remember being like, well, mom, you know, all the great stuff is going on in these other places. And she's like, but New York is so great. <laughs> and I remember, actually, I was at a conference. I, I had mentioned my PhD. I did it in the UK. And I was at a conference of, like, the Royal Society of Chemistry in London. Um, mm -hmm. It was basically one of these conferences where there was a lot of different technologies being discussed in re the renewable energy space. And there was a presenter there from IBM Research uh, oh. who gave this who gave this talk, and it was fascinating on this like very interesting materials uh, project that he was working on, and they were really doing some some really exciting things. And I remember kind of going and chatting with him after the talk, and asking him questions, and mentioning, hinting gently that I'd be graduating, uh, and that's actually how I got my interview at IBM Research. Was mm. I had kind of coincidentally met David Mitzi at this uh, conference in in the UK. Uh, mentioned uh, my work and you know kind of asked about uh, postdoc positions. And in the end, I mm. I actually uh, found a job in New York, and my mother was extraordinarily happy about that. <laughs> yes, of course. So you went to England to to find a job at IBM, and you were so That's close right. to IBM in the US. It's funny so how that happens. Yeah, and it's so interesting. I did my PhD in England as well, University of Brighton, uh, Interactive Technologies. Uh, and for me, because I'm from Brazil, you had that uh, different kind of culture. Did you see that when you went to to England and you lived in New York before? Did you? I, I found a lot Maybe. of interesting differences between the British educational system and the American educational system. And they're both mm -hmm. excellent. You know, I, I had mentioned I did my undergrad degree at MIT, and a lot of my friends continued on um, at MIT and in, in the United States uh, PhD programs and things. And I, I really found the combination of the two educational systems to be to be really excellent. I think um, the coursework that we have here in the United States and the rigor of the problem sets and the exams and uh, just the rigor of the the coursework here is is very, very, uh, is, you know, excellent, very high standards of, mm -hmm. of coursework expectations. Um, and, you know, I, and again, I'm making broad brush generalizations, uh, but, but this was my experience, right? In the UK, uh -huh. uh, my experience with the educational system was it was very much designed to create independent thinkers. So, you know, the, the, Grad pro the grad program, right? Very independent. The researchers there as a PhD students, postdocs, extremely independent. And even, you know, my, my interactions with some of the undergraduates at Cambridge, just the notion that you can have a whole semester or a whole uh, term with basically yeah. no exams and no graded assignments. And then you can have another term with no exams, no graded assignments. And it's only during exam term that you have to study and having learned all the things that you should have been learning all along, and then you get actually quizzed on it at the end, right? You take an exam at the end, mm -hmm. is really designed to kind of require the students to be independent. 
to be responsible, to be learning things, truly learning things along the way um, Mm -hmm. and really integrating them and internalizing them such that you can be quizzed only at the end of an entire year, having learned everything yourself. It's kind of a different approach. Both of them actually lead to, you know, tremendous learning um, and expertise, but very different styles of education, I think. Uh, One question that I have is about leadership. When you lead people, maybe do you think this is something that uh, it's a good value to have, like being more independent than I think think, uh, both ways of thinking and learning are so important uh, to just, you know, be able to contribute. Right. I mean, obviously, if you're if you're in a technical role, um, being able to go deep and, and do meaningful, like deep, meaningful technical work. You have to be able to be rigorous. You have to be able to be self-motivated to go and, and push yourself to do hard things. Um, I also think part of being an excellent researcher is the independent thinking aspect of being able to determine what are the most important problems to solve um, and to be able to figure out what you don't know and how you can learn it. Um, leadership, I think, also requires a tremendous amount of respect for one's colleagues and an understanding of how you can work together in a team and how everybody can uh, can play a role in helping move the whole effort forward. And, um, you know, I've been very lucky to have worked with excellent people and been a part of, you know, great communities um, throughout my life, whether work-related or not, right? I played team sports. I think that's an important yeah. part of it. Uh, learning how to work with others and really respect uh, and appreciate, you know, other people and and the skills that they have that you may not have, and how to work mm-hmm. together. Which kind of sports did you did you play? <laughs> <laughs> I played uh, surprisingly. I, I mean, when I was a kid, I played soccer and I played basketball. But throughout, actually, undergrad and grad school, I played rugby. So ah, I joined. I really? Joined, uh, <laughs> yes, yes. I joined the MIT Women's Rugby Club when I was an undergrad. Um, and that was a lot of fun. I made some really great friends and I had a lot, I just find the sport really fun. Uh, but when I got to Cambridge, obviously, uh, they take that, (laughs) they take that to a much more serious degree than the MIT club did. Uh Um, and I played with some like really outstanding, uh, athletes, uh, and I learned a lot and I, you know, I improved my skills a lot working with that, you know, playing with that Mm -hmm. club. Um, but yeah, it's like, you know, in rugby in particular, every single person in the team is literally in a different role, in a different role in, mm-hmm. in the sport, in the team. And, you know, from number one to number 15, there's 15 people on the field at any given time. Yeah. Uh, and each each player has a number, and that number is very different from every other number. Mm-hmm. Like, so you're 15 players, and each one has a very unique role in the game. And uh, you, can, you can know a lot about what role a person's in just by what number they play. And uh, mm-hmm. it really is a great way to build respect for what all the other players bring to the table. <laughs> yes, and it's like it's a clear communication what everyone should do because you know that they exactly. have that number, so <laughs> exactly. it's clear. And, it's and a what, good you can depend, be- what you can depend on others to do and what responsibility mm-hmm. you have in the team. Yeah, so this is very interesting. Uh, in the beginning of the week, I was in an event and they were talking about control. And one of the things uh, that the researchers did, they they identified that lack of control is the main cause of stress. Hmm. So this was one thing. Uh, And uh, (laughs) then when we think about that, it's not 
I don't know, we can think about if everyone knows what to do, it doesn't sound like a control if someone asks that. But I would like to to ask you about that and what you think about it. Yeah. That's so interesting. I never thought about what it is that causes stress. The idea that lack of control. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking back on like some of the most stressful times is when like, you know, something's happening that's outside of your control. That's a very interesting insight. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and anytime you're doing things in a group, you don't necessarily have to control what other people are doing. You have to know what you can expect other people to do and what role they're going to play and what role people expect you to play. And then together, if everybody is doing the things that we depend upon each other to be doing, then the whole effort can be successful. Um, you know, the times I've, I can think of that, you know, this notion of like being, you know, out of control and, you know, that being stressful is when something is coming that's going to ha have a negative impact on you or your team or your friends or whatever. And, and uh, there's nothing you can do to stop it, you know, illness or um, financial burdens or things like this. Right. Th those are the things where, you know, it's very stressful. Yes, and even after the pandemics, maybe to to deal with all that inside the teams, uh, mm -hmm. maybe it's a challenge as well. Yeah. Do you think it changed so before the pandemic and, and now, uh, the way that the teams work uh, and uh, how do we deal with uh, certain things that we didn't deal before? And, yeah. yeah, I mean, I can think back to when I would, do material science research and I would come into a lab and my job was dependent upon being on site with the equipment that I depended on for running my experiments. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I didn't explicitly state it today, but obviously the work I do is very different now than it was back then. Right. So I'm in more of a management or a leadership role and I have a team of people and to a large extent, the team, uh, that we have, um, is computer scientists, systems, systems researchers, um, so some, some combination of systems uh, innovators and software. Um, and a lot of the work actually can today be done off-site. So when we, when we had the pandemic, uh, you know, in place and people had to work from home, to a large extent, and there were some exceptions for sure, there were people who did continue to come into the lab but um, a lot of the work could be done remotely. And what I found was I, uh, I didn't know how that was going to go. I had actually never worked from home um, prior to the pandemic. Really? But what was interesting was how quickly, you know, everybody working from home was actually, was actually reasonably, uh, everybody quickly adopted the whole everybody working from home uh, mm -hmm. world. What, has, what is harder, I find, is when some of the team is in person and some of the team is remote. When everybody's in person or when everybody's remote, it's actually a little bit easier. But I think we're more sensitive now to the whole, you know, the whole story of some, some people are remote. I think we are able to, uh, to be inclusive now of people who are working remotely and think about the experience of working remotely much better than we did in the past this hybrid world of some people in person, some people remote, I think we're able to understand and be inclusive of those people in ways we, we weren't understanding or as, as understanding before. But why do you think it's challenging when it's hybrid? Just to be heard, right? So you have, there's certain mm. body language that people have when you're together in a conference room, eye contact and kind of the natural, somebody says something, it sparks an idea. There's kind of a natural dynamic in person 
where if you're remote or on the WebEx, sometimes it can be hard to kind of get into the, get your voice heard, get into the conversation. But I think that we're much better about that now than we were before the pandemic. Thinking back before the pandemic, there's, there's always been collaborations that we've had across labs. So it used to be, you know, yeah. we have some researchers here in New York and some researchers in a different location, whether, you know, West Coast, Europe, you know, another continent. Mm-hmm. Um, we had, even before the pandemic, hybrid meetings. But I feel like now we're more aware and inclusive of the people who aren't in the room than we were able to be before, just because of the experience of having to deal with hybrid work. Mm-hmm. And how to communicate that to be heard during the meetings as well. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I'd like to talk a little bit about quantum, quantum computing. And uh, yeah, I know that you talk a lot about that. But actually, my question is related to what we were talking before uh, about communication skills. And I saw that video that you explained it. <laughs> Uh, to five-years-old kids and teenagers <laughs> and the specialists, what is quantum? Um, how was that experience for you, like uh, to build that? And uh, we know even from the talks that you you give, you gave before, uh, you have this like uh, I don't know this gift to to really engage the audiences and the people they can understand very abstract concepts like a quantum computer. So I'd like to know a little bit more if you have any tricks. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for saying that. And uh, I, I think in that in that example, um, I'm not actually an expert. I have no at no point in my career have I actually done research in quantum computing. So my interest in quantum computing, you know, and learning about it stemmed just from like wanting to learn about it and the experience of going from not understanding it to improving over time my understanding of it. It's easier for me to remember what it was like to go through that journey and what are the things that what are the concepts that were helpful to me in understanding it because I wasn't an expert. I think when it when you become an expert in something, you almost forget what it's like not to know anything about it. So it's almost oh. hard to remember where to start with the explanation. I think maybe because I was a learner myself and I went through an, a journey of improving my understanding from nothing to something that I could remember what were the things that were helpful to me, um, which I tried to communicate in some of those in some of those videos. So, you know, not so long ago, I myself was, you know, some of the, some of the, the earlier parts of that video, but it was a lot of fun and it was really a cool opportunity that was very, I very, feel very fortunate to have had. And I will also say that the Wired team were very helpful, meaning we recorded for much, much longer than the 20-minute video that got generated. So I had oh, lots, okay. of, lots of opportunities to try things out and to uh, for them to edit out you know, all of the bad ones and just keep the good explanations. Uh, it, it, the, the final result was very spontaneous for all the participants there. So for us, it's like <laughs> you did yeah, The behind the scenes know, was so, I, I had uh, to try it a lot of times before we got, we got it right. Uh-huh. No, and that's interesting related to our podcast as well, because, you know, if you put yourself in a learner position, you can see things that the others don't see. So how can we put yourself in a learner position even if you are an expert? in the field and even there sometimes you know sometimes teaching something I don't remember exactly who has who started who said this first or best but you know teaching something is 
is the ultimate mark that you truly understand it. Because, you know, a lot of learners will ask questions that force you to like revisit assumptions that you've just held on to for a long time. So actually the act of teaching or the act of, uh, you know, helping someone new understand something, they may ask questions that actually stump you. Um, so teaching is a great way of getting yourself back into a learner mindset. Yeah, it's true. Because then you have to think about people. They can understand. They should understand you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, I know when you were working uh, with Quantum, or actually, I, I thought that you had a team that working with you uh, and thinking about the future of technologies like designers and engineers. I'm sorry if I'm wrong. <laughs> but yeah, that was okay. Yeah. So I've had a I've had four different careers at IBM Research since I started. Ah, okay. If you can there's, talk a little yeah, bit about there's, that. There's the first one, which I meant, which you know I mentioned, which is I was hired to do these material science projects, um, and there's the fourth one, which I'm doing now, which is um, I'm leading a team working on cloud infrastructure research. But the journey to get from A to B was, went through two other <laughs> two other roles. Um, one of them, so you know, um, at the time, obviously IBM is not a company that makes solar cells, right? So the projects mm -hmm. that we were doing at the time were were through collaborations with different um, different companies and also with funding from, um, you know, the, the Department of Energy. When those projects wrapped up, um, there was an opportunity to think about transitioning to a different project or a different role. And um, at the time, I got nominated by uh, the person who was the director of my department then. Her name is Heike. She was managing a department called the Physical Sciences Department. She nominated me for a growth opportunity. So IBM provides this, uh, this particular type of role called a technical assistant uh, for various like uh, VPs and senior leaders across the company. You can kind of join their staff for a year um, and kind of help them be effective and accomplish their goals. And at the time, um, Dario Gill, who's now, you know, the senior vice president, you know, running the research division at the time, he was... Um, He was uh, managing a department which included the physical sciences department, but lots of other departments like our mathematical sciences and our IoT and our healthcare research, a, a collection of uh, different um, uh, departments that we had inside the research division. So he was looking for a technical assistant that could help him kind of join his staff for a year and learn about the various things we do and help. Uh, help him, you know, kind of get more done. So I joined his staff for a year and it was an And a really excellent experience. And it was during that year that I learned about quantum computing because that was part of his portfolio. And that was the year that we, we launched IBM Quantum. And, you know, we, had, we started to talk more about quantum computing externally and things like that. So that's kind of how I got more informed on quantum computing. And I got to know the quantum computing team and started some of this outreach work. Um, and it was also during that year that, that Dario took responsibility for our AI research community. So I got to learn a lot about AI throughout that year. So it really was an outstanding growth opportunity for me um, to really step outside everything that I knew and learn a lot about a lot of technology areas. So that was the second kind of role. Um, and then kind of after that, uh, I had the opportunity to manage um, a design and development team, as you're, as you're describing, where... Part of, the, part of the work that team did was to collaborate with um, teams across the research division. Quantum computing team was one of them, teams across the research division to try to incubate technologies we were developing and make them more uh, directly consumable to users, right? So to, mm -hmm. to kind of 
take technologies and think about how will a person use this and can we prototype some some things and create, you know, better user experiences and interfaces that that think about making the technology more consumable. So it was in that in that role that I got to again learn more and spend more time with the quantum computing team on some of the the user experience of our quantum systems. Um, mm-hmm. And it was also during that year that I I got a chance to I know you guys have talked a lot about the GTO on this podcast, but I <laughs> global technology outlook. <laughs> yeah, the, okay, the global you. technology outlook. It's um it's a program we run every year in the research division, whose purpose is to think about what are the uh, what are the new things that um, that we're seeing from a technology and business uh, perspective. What are the, the new technologies coming? that are going to have business implications for IBM where we should be spending more time thinking about it, working on it, um, and bringing those new opportunities into fruition. So it was in that role of kind of the strategy part and uh, technology and design team. Um, and that, that's kind of what I was doing immediately before uh, taking this role with cloud infrastructure research. Oh, thank you so much for, for all that. So it <laughs> It's a been a way. really cool journey, I will have to say. You know, working for a company like IBM is such a great, wonderful opportunity because I can have such broad and diverse experiences in a short time. I've only been at IBM Research for 10 years. Actually, I just celebrated my 10-year anniversary in July. Woo! Um, Congratulations. But if you think about it, like that kind of a journey over 10 years is really, really cool. It's been amazing for me. Yes, and uh, actually experience so... They are different those roles like a researcher and then with a team that uh, you you are leading designers and developers so probably there you've had and to I be learned a, a lot. great leader yeah. yeah i have to say like uh, i view these these different these different opportunities i've had all of them as an opportunity for me to learn because obviously i didn't know anything about design didn't know anything about software engineering and so it was really a chance for me to learn And even now, like I joined this team, the cloud infrastructure research, I didn't know anything about infrastructure, cloud infrastructure. And it's been an opportunity for me to learn. And, you know, my role isn't to tell these people how to do their job at all, right? Obviously, I don't know how to do their job. It's to help figure out in collaboration with these teams, what are the most important problems to solve that we should be spending our time on. So that's so interesting. So you guide them to to work in, in the problems or challenges that really we really need to solve, but they are the ones that have the skills to solve. Completely, completely, right? Totally. <laughs> and it goes back to full and complete appreciation and respect for the other people that we work with who have so many skills that, you know, I certainly don't have. But figuring out, you know, I, I really believe for a lot of the teams that I've worked with here, they could solve any problem they set their minds to. The question is what problems we should be solving that are going to have the impact. Oh, that's wonderful. They have their number, but they can explore <laughs> that and they'll learn other positions as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we now we have the, the moment of the, the growth mindset question. We are talking about growth mindset since we started, about learning new things and the teaching and the value of that. But is there any time in your life that you had uh, a setback or a challenge or a breakdown or that you had to overco- overcome it? And uh, how was it? Yeah, I think, uh, I think I wouldn't call it a setback at all, but I would say, you know, on the subject of growth mindset, I mentioned like I've changed roles for, you know, my fourth one. 
And uh, I was thinking about it. And each time somebody presented me with an opportunity to say, hey, do you want to do this type of thing instead of what you're doing now? I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'll admit it. My instinct is always to say, oh, no, thank you. I'm I'm perfectly fine. I'm perfectly happy doing what I'm doing. Uh-huh. <laughs> Why? Oh. Because because I really like what I'm doing. I remember back when um, my director at the time had recommended that I consider taking this uh, technical assistant role. I said, no, no, no. Yeah. I really like what I'm doing. It's okay. I really like it. <laughs> I'm happy in the lab, you know, turning knobs, doing what I'm doing. And she's like, you really should think about it. And, you know, she got me. She asked me, like, what's, you know, what are you afraid of? What's the downside? What, are you, what do you have to lose mm-hmm. if you take this role? Because I would say, oh, but what if I don't like it as much? And what if I want to go back to doing what I was doing before? She's like, well, what, what do you have to lose? You'll just go back to doing what you did before. You have nothing to lose, right? And mm-hmm. so, of course, of course, I realized she was right. <laughs> and of course, I took wow. the role and it was great. And I didn't want to go back. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, similar, similar, similar point about, you know, do do you want to take this role, like working with this you know, amazing design and development team? Oh, no, I'm really happy. Dude. This is really great. <laughs> you know, I don't know anything about design and development. And, you know, of course, then, you know, you take the role and it's amazing and you learn a lot. And I, I had the same. I remember, you know, do you want to do you want to go and work with the cloud infrastructure research team? I don't know anything about cloud, like zero. I know nothing. I, I couldn't know less about cloud infrastructure. You, I'm definitely the wrong person for this role. No, no, no. You should really consider it. And it's been amazing. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the thing that may inhibit some people on the growth mindset is like that you're just happy with what you're doing and the status quo. Yeah. But I think what you don't realize uh, with that mindset is like, well, something else could also be great and could be even, even better. Um, mm-hmm. So that's been a journey for me. <laughs> And at least I'm, yeah. a, I'm self-aware enough to know that that's my initial reaction <laughs> to caution myself. Yes, that's, it's a great uh, way of thinking and uh, taking new challenges and learning and growing. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I, I'm going to remember this forever. So <laughs> we have our last question that's related uh, to your life. So what makes you happy? in life oh my my kiddo my kiddo makes me happy we had a we have a a a baby Mm. who's uh 14 months old and Uh you know I've always known like oh yeah one day I'd like to have kids and it's so hard to know what it's going to be like when they come but it's just so wonderful um every day he does something new when he giggles Uh it's just like the most delightful (laughs) the most delightful part of any day um, and I would say I broaden it to say my family, you know, I have like very, very lucky to have a wonderful husband, wonderful parents, brother, mm-hmm. cousins. Um, so yeah, I really think it's the people in your life that give the life the most meaning. So very grateful to have a wonderful family that makes me happy. Oh, thank you so much. That's wonderful. And, and, uh, yes, Talia, so we are in the end of our podcast today. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful and a pleasure conversation. We learned a lot with you. Uh, I'm inspired. I hope everybody that listens to this podcast is, is inspired as me. Thank you. So, Thanks so much for having me, Halisa. Oh, thank you. So that ends up today's episode on, on Not Knowing. A big thank to our producer and Arrow Sincio and John Lanchner that are part of the team. 
Thank you so much, Talia, again. I'm Eloisa Cabello, and thanks for listening.